Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Welcome to our Belfast episode, and it's the first episode from Belfast. We had a politician, we had activists, performers, and we had our very special guest, Amanda Palmer. Thank you very much to the Belfast Mac, where we recorded this episode, and here it is. Welcome, everyone, to the women's podcast from Belfast. I'm Roshi Ningle, and while I'm welcoming you, can I also say welcome, everybody, to this new progressive Northern Ireland that has been so hard fought for. I think everybody in this room knows, but let's just remind ourselves again that on midnight last Monday night, the 158-year-old ban on abortion was lifted in favour of decriminalisation, despite the best efforts of anti-choice MLAs who suddenly were very anxious to restore the Stormont government, which has been dead for over a thousand days. But when the clock struck midnight, there was a seismic shift in the social reality of life in Northern Ireland. Gay couples can now marry and women and girls will have access to abortion services. The end to Northern Ireland's abortion ban is a triumph for grassroots activism and it's been called, I saw this described, I think it was The Guardian, one of the most radical movements of contemporary feminism to be seen this century. Um, There's a lot to be ironed out over the next five months of the consultation period. We're going to be discussing that with our panel and reflecting on this momentous week for Northern Ireland. We're just going to introduce um, listeners to the panel. Paula Bradshaw is an Alliance MLA who has, uh, many have, been on a bit of a journey, slight journey with abortion. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Danielle Roberts is one of the key figures in Alliance for Choice who've been fighting for decriminalisation. And she's also doing a PhD because she's not busy enough. And she's a bit tired, so... (laughs) Um, And also our special guest is the rock star, activist, feminist, firebrand, poet and all-round badass woman, Amanda Palmer, who, in the way, a few years back, she kept finding herself scheduled in towns where there was natural disasters. She has lately been landing in at euphoric moments of human rights restoration, which is better than ash clouds and hurricanes because a sort of human rights hurricane happened here. So I think that that's good. But before we hear from them, I asked performer and activist Kelly Turtle to take us through her own story and her own perception of the fight for reproductive rights in Northern Ireland. And after that, we're going to have a discussion about what happens next. But please give it up for Kelly Turtle. I'm here to introduce myself. I'm Kelly Turtle. I am a feminist activist, a performer, a general rabble rouser. I'm also a mom of two beautiful babies and a recovering evangelical Christian. So I'm basically all the sides of the abortion debate wrapped up in one very sleep-deprived mind. Um, Like most people in this room, I first heard about abortion in a school religious education class not a biology class, no, no, that would be far too objective and relevant. 
Um, no, it was pitched obviously as a moral issue and at 14 all I knew is that I was morally opposed to it. I spent my teenage years and some of my 20s loving Jesus, running Christian summer camps, reading my Bible, also endlessly repenting for how much I masturbated. <laughs> because... Let's not pretend any of us is that one-dimensional. And uh, <laughs> for someone whose nickname at school was Holy Joe, I masturbated a lot. <laughs> um, when I was a young Christian community worker, I did a training course on feminism. And I can still remember the moment when the trainer explained what it meant to develop a feminist lens. She said, you'll never see the world in the same way again. Oh, how right she was. <laughs> Uh, education, sex and relationships, movies, songs, 90s Ladakh culture, representations of the feminine in early Irish mythology, pfft, all of it, gone. <laughs> I was like Neo after he could see the Matrix. <laughs> like, do not try to smash the patriarchy, that is impossible. Only try to understand the truth. There is no patriarchy. <laughs> or something like that. But... It was actually another few years before my new obsession with feminism had a serious impact on my views on abortion. That came more slowly, as I think it does for many people. Here are some of the milestones for me. My faith started to change. Social justice got into it and messed around with it. I found it harder and harder to believe that God had a unique and wonderful plan for each person's life when the system was so clearly rigged. And so many people have the odds stacked against them. I started to become the kind of Christian who was more concerned with changing the stuff in this world than telling people that they needed to get ready for the next one. Also, my sexuality changed. I realized that all that masturbating could be more fun when you invited someone else to join in. <laughs> and so for the first time, trying to avoid getting pregnant or thinking through the consequences of accidentally becoming so had a real impact on my life. But the thing for me that moved me more than anything else on this journey was becoming a mum. I mean, obviously, there's the huge physical impact that that has on your body. I could say a lot about that, but I won't scare the people who <laughs> might be considering it. Um, the bottom line is obviously that no one should give their body or should have to give their body over to that experience unless they are 100% on board. But it's much more than that. It's the fact that you then realize that this little person is your whole world and your whole world is in this little person and you will never not be responsible for them for as long as you live. And you want to live a really, really long time because what the hell would they do without you? But also you want to die because you haven't slept more than three consecutive hours <laughs> in the last two months and you're starting to forget your own name. So there's all of that. And whenever I meet women who tell me that their abortion was because they didn't feel ready to become a mother, I am so in awe of their wisdom and the respect that they have for the enormity of this task. So for me, in a very intense five-year period, I was pregnant five times. I have my beautiful daughter, I have my beautiful son. I had two miscarriages in between and I had an abortion. 
whenever people say to me, as they often do, making small talk, do you think you'll have any more? Whenever I give the answer, no, I'm done, I feel every bit of those five years. I think I will continue to feel all of it until people stop asking that question. So for me, my abortion was about being able to draw a line. Maybe I could have pushed through to see if my capacity to deal with all that chaos would stretch a little further, but it was so important to me to have the freedom to say, no, I'm done. So I'm really looking forward to our conversations today and thank you for listening. It just makes me so happy to hear because we talked in the South and we'll be talking about this later when the referendum is going on about good and bad abortions. Those of us who had abortions for the reasons, um, and I think, as I agree with Kelly, admirable reasons that Kelly talked about, felt somehow that we had failed and we were felt shunned and the stigma was very, very um, big on that. So I'm really glad to hear. Kelly, absolutely brilliant and thanks for doing that and thanks for talking about, um, I think you really hit on the the divisive nature of it up here particularly where there is a lot of, you know, extremely um, the faith communities are very strong and all that and you've been through all that, so thank you very much um, Danielle, I want to come to you first of all, okay. this is such a huge week for you guys and I know some of you are in the audience who have been fighting for this so hard you've had your stalls out, you've been talking to people you've been agitating and lobbying um, can you just describe to us, apart from the tiredness and extreme exhaustion, <laughs> what Midnight on Monday was like for all of you? Uh, yeah, we have a group chat, a WhatsApp group. There's a fair few stall activists in the in the room. And yeah, it was just firing off with messages, just like, woohoo, we did it, this is it. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was really quite emotional and we have a there's a few different we're quite organized so there's a few <laughs> different group chats and they were all like there was one with arc one with like this sort of Atlanta choice steering group one with stall activists and they were all you know alive at midnight on a monday with people saying isn't this brilliant with this is it it's it's over the line because we had had the shenanigans earlier that day which wouldn't have changed anything long term but would have been a delay so um, to get through that was, yeah, a bit of last minute pressure, but that was good. Um, but at, at midnight, I got a message from a woman who had told me her story. So a friend uh, who, we were in an empty house and she got up to close the kitchen door before she even told me in hushed tones um, that she had used abortion pills um, a few years previously. Um, and had been sort of living in fear ever since that the police were going to come knocking at her door. And so at midnight, she sent me just a, a heart emoji. Um, so that was really, like, that is a lot of what we're doing, is the practical the practical help, but then also the listening to people. And, and Danielle, we'll talk about the listening because um, you told me, and I hadn't quite realised, that even listening to someone's story, which you did that time, was in itself something that could have landed you in prison or in a court case? Yeah, so Section 5 of the Criminal Law Act um, in 1967, so while England and Wales were getting abortion access, we were getting um, extra criminal laws. Um, yeah, so if somebody tells you they've committed an offence that's a serious offence, 
Um, so anything over 10 years in prison, roughly, is the benchmark. And of course, abortion is life. Um, or was, was oh, life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you don't then report that person, then you've committed a crime yourself. So every time that somebody on the stall or somebody man on the Facebook page or somebody just having a stranger come up to them and be like, hmm, I see that you are wearing a pro-choice badge, so let me tell you something. Um, just by listening to their story, you were a criminal yourself, whether you'd been facilitating them, just by listening to people who desperately needed to talk about their experience, but were too worried to talk to a counsellor in case they got reported. And it's not an empty worry. We had people who were reported by medical professionals. So people who needed to let this out and talk about the, the stigma and the, the shame that they were experience, experiencing, which is you know, unwarranted, but is the society we live in uh, at the minute. But we are working hard to change that and to combat the stigma, and hopefully people will be able to talk about their stories more openly if they want to. Um, things like In Her Shoes are doing an amazing job at, at sharing people's personal stories. Um, but yeah, there's so many people that have been involved just through listening to other people who now they're not a criminal anymore either because there's no offence to report. Um, for people listening to the podcast who don't necessarily know the ins and outs, and it's something actually Amanda was asking me on the way up, why did you get these extra criminal things and not get abortion when England and Wales did in 67? What is the reason? Is there a short reason, Danielle? Uh, <laughs> this place we live is complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, even the language I would use to talk about this place, like, do I say Northern Ireland? Do I say the North? That's true. Like, yeah. you know, we've had different hashtags to take into account that we are a cross-community campaign and, you know, it's it's not about the, the divide. But so the, the criminal law was nothing to do with abortion. It was to do with reporting other crimes, but the impact it had was far-reaching um, and could affect people disclosing domestic violence or sexual violence as well. Mm. So um, there are, you know, impacts of law that aren't necessarily foreseen. Um, there's been a few attempts to extend um, abortion access to Northern Ireland. So in the 60s when the discussion was happening, it was just Northern Ireland isn't ready. They don't want it. It's not on the table at all. Uh, then in the in 2009, the amendment. Um, so people talk about the DEP doing a deal with the Tories now. Well, they did a deal with Labour then. Um, there was an amendment suggested that would have brought in abortion access. So Emily Thornberry and Diane Abbott were, um, were trying to get access and they were thrown under the bus. And a deal was done with the DEP for votes on um, the 40-day detention act. So um, that's not... The official line, but that's what you can read through what happened in Parliament. Um, so there has been blocks to changing the law by politicians and possibly also through a perception of what public attitudes here are, which maybe happened in the South too, this idea of like a middle Ireland and we need to talk about compassion. Do you have a middle Northern care. Ireland? Well, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think we've got, I think we've got very... Um, yeah, but polls actually show the support is greater than than what people perceive. Isn't that right? They, it, yeah. It's shown that up to seventy and yeah, eighty percent. So the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey, which is 
an academic study carried out by ARC, which is a project joint between Queen's University and Austria University. So it's, it's academics doing this, it's not pollsters, it's not paid for by organisations that sometimes pay for people to conduct polls, uh, which we've had a lot of, um, has shown increasing support for reform. And when asked, do you think it's a woman's right to choose? That's the, the wording of the question. 70% of people agreed. So whether they themselves agreed with abortion or not, they ultimately yeah. understood it was somebody else's decision. Can you take us through sort of Stella Creasy and the recent, um, what's led to it now, just briefly, and I want to come to you, Amanda, as an observer to Northern mm. Ireland. So the past few years, there's been some court cases. Um, so there's been judicial reviews. So Sarah Yurt, Ashley Topley and Denise Phelan have, have taken cases that went all the way to the Supreme Court and lost on a technicality. Um, but there was also a case of um, AMB, so a, a woman and her teenage daughter who had to travel and um, for the teenage daughter to access. And off the back of that, the Supreme Court said Westminster could choose to pay for abortion access but didn't have to mm. because up until then we had to pay for treatment. So um, Stella got involved off the back of that and um, introduced an amendment to the Queen's speech, which if it had... There was, that was a, the past few years have been, you know, politically very interesting at Westminster anyway, but um, that led to funding coming in. And then as Stormont collapsed, there was bills to sort of keep the day-to-day -day -day taken over. And so the executive formation and executive function bill last year mandated the Secretary of State to report on human rights issues of abortion access and equal marriage. So every three months they had to get up in front of Parliament and basically say, um, there's been no change. Yeah. So that was good because it kept it really topical and kept a focus on it. And then the most recent bill, um, the Executive Formation, I think they ended up calling it Executive Formation Etc. Act because there were so many things. <laughs> yeah, so many things added on to it. Um, it put in a deadline of the 21st of October and said if Stormont isn't back by the 21st of October, then abortion will be decriminalised. Regulations that are CEDAW compliant must come in by the end of March 2020 yeah. and equal marriage must be legislated for. Thank you for bringing us up to speed. And these next five months are going to be very important and we're going to talk about that with Paula and Kelly. But I just wanted to bring you in, Amanda, as well, because I mentioned you coming in for hurricanes and natural disasters. I mean, you, you're, you were there for repeal, which is amazing. And now you're here for this momentous week for Northern Ireland. How? <laughs> Talk, take me back to repeal and, and, and we'll come up to this week as well. But it was very inspiring for you, that trip to Dublin and a very coincidental sort of trip, really. Yeah, it, it was. So I was in town um, with my husband. Uh, we were both doing the Literature Festival and I had, a, um, I had a speaking gig at the Literature Festival and a gig at the National Concert Hall. And it was only, it was maybe three weeks before the gig that I actually really became cognizant of what was happening. Because people like Roisin started <laughs> tweeting at me. Like, like, you I do realize when you're coming. Um, and, you know, I, was I felt like I was vaguely up to speed as someone who reads the newspapers. And I was like, yeah, you guys are having some kind of vote. <laughs> Probably nothing will happen. Um, and then, you know, and then I got like a crash course in, um, in, in uh, the history of abortion and the grassroots movement and everything that I had only been vaguely reading about from a distance. And I mean, literally within 24 hours and, and meeting Roisin, who then introduced me to a few other people, 
I just, like, I could not believe that I was literally physically standing there at that moment in history by accident, <laughs> kind of. Um, and then, um, and then the, the gig that I had speaking, and this is, again, like a bizarre uh, confluence, the gig that I had speaking at the Literature Festival happened to be with Laurie Penny, who is an, an extremely outspoken, wonderful writer, journalist, feminist, and we handed over the entire, the, like the entirety of our discussion at the Literature Festival to the repeal vote. I mean, it had happened the day before, and we just happened to be sitting there on a stage in front of people discussing it. And you know, and Lori was far more educated um, and erudite about this subject than I was. And one of the things that I found myself saying constantly and still say is that, you know, I'm, my expertise here is, an, is, is as an emotional artist, mm -hmm. not as one who has sat and actually studied the laws and, and, and really looked at the nitty gritty of the policy. But I have allied myself with the right people. <laughs> um, and so that was, you know, and just... And just being there in the street, in the pubs, in, in, the, in the restaurants, having the conversations with Roisin and Tara and Una Malali and, and really getting the picture of what they had had to do to make this moment happen um, was incredibly inspiring and also distressing given what was going on in America that week because there was a simultaneous, there were two films running. And, you know, and I had always had that kind of, well, I'm from America, you know, where everything is fine. And <laughs> um, everything was not fine. A abortion was being made slowly but surely, quietly inaccessible. And I mean, you could, you could make a movie out of the poetry of reading the articles while I'm sitting there in the back of the cab in Dublin going like, ah, now women from Louisiana are going to have to travel eight hours and these, you know, and these people can't afford to travel. So these people are going to be forced to give birth. They can't take off work. They can't get there. They can't do it. And I mean, it was, uh, it was sobering. Yeah. to watch these two stories happening at the same time. And then you land here, and look at the week that you were in Northern Ireland. It's kind of crazy. It was not mapped out You need this to fly way. to yeah. every place. You need to go to Malta next. And Great. <laughs> Off we go to Malta. Florida, yeah. Um, I'm going to come back to talk to you about good and bad abortions, because I think it's really interesting, and it's part of the busting of stigma, which I think still has to happen here. And to be honest, it still has to happen in the South as well, because even though we have um, abortion, I found myself talking to people or having events, it's still a subject that makes people kind of go, like that, you know, even though it's healthcare and we've acknowledged that in our legislation and yet it's still something that people feel they don't want to talk about. So we'll come back to that. Paula, um, I mentioned you had a bit of a journey. I might have been exaggerating slightly, but I think in some ways, and, and Kelly touched on it there too, being in Northern Ireland and a lot of the messages that come down to you, you can't help but kind of feel somewhat, you know, have a, have a problem or issue or have to reflect on it. So can you talk us through on a personal level, first of all, where you've come from, and then maybe we'll talk about what needs to happen in the next five months sure. as well. thank you. This has been fabulous so far. I'm not sure I'm <laughs> going to be able to follow it. But, um, well, I suppose, um, I think it was a general election in 2017 or something. I think people started... 
being talked about a lot more and I think that the campaign team said, Polly, you're going to have to come public with your position on abortion. And I was very clear about it, but, but as a politician, and especially in this week, I think we've probably all received, as MLA's, about 2,000 emails from people. Really? Just the same one over and over again, so I cut and paste and send them the same response back. But, you know, the, the strength of feeling around this has, has been very, very um, acute, and I do know that there are a lot of people who are very, very unhappy about what has happened here in Northern Ireland. Um, but I, I thought, I'm just going to have to come very clear. So then that forced me then to think exactly where am I on abortion? But as a feminist, my daughter um, started doing her A-levels at this um, this academic term, and she says there's nine forms of feminism, apparently. And I said, God, I, once I get through these thousands of emails, I will find out where I am on that spectrum. But I, but from a nine, point, okay. uh, apparently. But, but, but I'm, I'm very much looking at this from a social justice. That was the, the phrase you used, social justice issue. I work with the birth mothers who were in the mother and baby homes who had their children illegally taken from them and, and, and adopted out. And so in terms of my politics and the issues that I get involved in, you know, I'm very, very delighted about the marriage equality this week and, and other things that we need to change. And as part of the talks, when we were um, trying to get this, the assembly back up and running in May, the convener of the Rights, Languages and Identity Working Group, which I led um, for the Alliance Party, on the first day they said, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, look, we have to, if we get Storm back up and running, we have to send out a very clear message about what we want society to be. And it's funny talking about this now, because one of them I said was, we need to set a date for marriage equality coming in, because in the past they've sort of said, oh yes, we let it happen, but you know, we needed to pin that down. And the second thing was, um, there had been an interdepartmental working group had been set up at one point, and that was to look at abortion in cases of fetal, fetal abnormality. And that was quite conclusive in that the clinicians had said, you know, this should happen. And um, the likes of Sarah Ewart that you had mentioned there and her mother, Jane Christie, had very much campaigned for, for that change. And I said, as a politician, if we go back and all we have is abortion in those cases, I, I can live with that. And then we will get the petition of concern reformed because I know there was a separate work stream around that. And then as politicians, knowing the, the composition of the MLA um, after the last election um, uh, makeup, that we would get um, advancements around abortion law reform. And I didn't anticipate them to be in this regard. Am I sad as a legislator to the Northern Ireland Assembly that we didn't put it through? Absolutely. But Paula, I know you're saying sad, but... What Not sad. I mean, I, I, I'm very, I think it's very disappointing because I think that we have been robbed of the opportunity to have the discussions. Yeah. And the emails that I've been getting through are we're going to have the most liberalised abortion laws in Northern Ireland. People are now going to rock up at 28 weeks and start aborting their... Um, I mean, it has been file, and the, the problem is we've had so much scaremongering around this. And I, and, and usually I don't. When people come to me with that sort of stuff, I usually will delete. But I thought, no, we need this. There is a communication war around this, and some political parties are better at others at the very emotional stuff, the very short statements that land. And a thanks to Kelly and others here in this room who who helped me then try and get the message out. I'm not sure we, we how much we we got, but that communication. Um, battle will take place for the next five months. I agree with you about the conversation, but I'm just wondering if it had come in for fate of fetal and then, you know, just how long that process would have taken in terms of the fact how it's happened now yes. in such a broad way. I mean... No, I, when I say sad, I mean it in the sense of I, I would like Northern Ireland's um, MLAs to reflect where wider society is. And the other part of that is that we have to ensure that we get more money into education, into the schools, so that the, the some of the commissioned 
services that go in isn't based on biblical leanings or religious leanings, but it's back, based on factual information for our young people. Um, and we then need to then look at um, access to contraceptives. We need to put more um, availability to uh, free and partial advice. And then if at the end of that informed journey, a woman still wants to have an abortion, then they, they have it access and then they get any support services that they choose at the end of it. And it would only be through a Northern Ireland Assembly that we can really have that interdepartmental education, where are you on this? Justice, where are you on this? Healthcare, where are you on this? And communities, where are you on this? What are you going to do to bring together a wraparound support for women around sexual reproductive health? So I think it will happen, but um, wider societies maybe not getting an opportunity to feed into that conversation right now. Right, and that probably hopefully will happen over the next five months. Kelly, where do you see the conversation going now? And um, can you, do you have hopes that it will be a, he a healthy conversation where people can talk about it in a way that's not hysterical? Because I think you're the same up here as we were for so long. There was these very binary <laughs> debates where one person was saying one thing, and it was just not productive. It didn't help anybody. And it was only when we had like the likes of the Citizens' Assembly, where we had groups like mm -hmm. In Her Shoes, where people disclosed their own stories and we talked about it, that yeah. suddenly it started to be a different conversation. So talk to me about your own uh, abortion, first of all, mm -hmm. and how you like to see the conversation around you know, I've had one as well for the same reasons you did. Yeah. It wasn't the right time for me. Um, so talk to me about that, about the time and, and the stigma that still needs to be yeah. reached. Well, um, stigma busting is probably my the thing I've been most passionate about. Even as I've been involved in the campaign to change the law, um, it always comes back to me for me about like how we communicate this to people so that we bring people with us. And that is one of the possible downsides of this having come through Westminster, although I wouldn't change that for a second, no. um, because they were they should have done this years ago. They had ample opportunity, as Danielle pointed out, and it's long overdue. But the one downside is that we now do have to do more work to bring people with us. We wouldn't have wanted a referendum campaign that you had to endure in the South. Um, it wasn't a constitutional law, and we shouldn't have had to go begging for our rights. So. It, it was right that that didn't happen, but I think there could be, a, you know, a middle ground would have been good where we could have actually tried to, to bring those conversations forward. I think the first thing we have to do, as Paula pointed out, is counter the lies. There is an unbelievable amount of rubbish that is being spread through social media. We live in the era of fake news. Would you expect anything else? Um, and it's really hard, you know, some nights I'm sitting, I'm about to close my laptop and go to bed and I see somebody put something on Facebook about how now in Northern Ireland you can pick one twin to keep and one to abort. Yeah. And, you know, and I just want to, I'm like, just don't do it, just walk away. You know, so we can't do all of that everywhere, there's just too much of it. But if we can be strategic about how we really get those messages out there, we can... Um, hopefully reassure people. Um, sometimes I do want to just say to everyone, please engage your critical faculties. And if people are believing this stuff, then I think that says something about a bias. There's, you know, they're choosing to believe it. So we've got to maybe take it back a step and think about why people would choose to believe something so horrific about women and about doctors, that doctors would countenance half of the things that they're claiming are going to happen. Do you get the sense up here um, from your activism and you know, all the stuff that, that has happened on the stalls that people are dividing abortions into ones that they think are better than the yeah. other ones and as someone who had one, that is yeah. bad, terrible. No, so, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm joking. So I have <laughs> but um, you know, how, do you kind of, how do you try to counter that? How do you explain that to people who have that perception? 
Um, it's, it's definitely true. And actually, the first time I ever told my story in the media was in the Irish Times during the referendum campaign in the South, because I felt that as, the, as it came close to the final days, the really horrific stories of trauma and loss and, you know, those were the ones that were getting very intense. I actually struggled to read the In Her Shoes page in those final few weeks because it was just, I, I was just crying constantly. And I submitted my story to the Irish Times on the basis of my, I think the first line I used was my abortion was ridiculously ordinary. Um, and I, I, I've always felt that we needed to open up that space to talk about what might be maybe perceived as the bad abortion. For me, it's the run-of-the-mill, yeah. like ordinary. ordinary yeah. Um, there's and, the, and just that should be said, the majority of abortions are for those reasons. I mean, it's yeah. only a tiny, smaller number that are for the reasons that we've heard most about, which, which was the reason I told my story, because I got to a point where I was like, but I, I know I'm not the only one somehow, but I'm not hearing anybody else. I'm only hearing about these very um, heart-wrenching and they're distressing. But I wasn't hearing about the woman just going, yeah. making a very sensible decision for herself, which you did, yeah. and which I know Amanda did, and you can talk about it too. I've had some conversations recently with people in faith communities, so I'm going back to my roots and I'm trying to get out into churches. How is that? It's really... <laughs> you know, I've started with the friendly ones um, who are already open to having different conversations. We have some brilliant, open, inclusive... You know, there's a faith community in Carrick, Fergus, of all places, um, called Harbour Faith Community, who I recently did a couple of discussion workshops in. Do you know, it's, it's really heartening to see... I, I, for a lot of people, I think, who are still not sure how they feel, they've gotten to a place where they can see that criminalising people is bad. Um, and I think that's <coughs> consistent with a Christian value base. You know, you, you should not try to deal with difficult social issues through the criminal justice system. Um, and that's where the reproductive justice movement came from in America and women of colour pointing out that the pro-life position that relied on the criminal justice system was totally inconsistent because the criminal justice system brings violence and death into people's lives, particularly people of colour. So I'm trying to have conversations like that here with people in faith communities to say, yeah, if you can start from accepting that criminalisation is bad, then we start to open up the possibilities of what might be good for someone and what might bring value to their life. And for many people, an abortion is a really good thing that they're able to do for themselves or for their families. And that question of it being a moral issue or a healthcare, is that mm -hmm. something that you found they can take on? Because it's, the moral seems to trump everything sometimes mm -hmm. for, for people. So. I think we have um, much more nuance than the dominant voices. Um, I think people's ideas of morality are really rich and nuanced. Um, and not, I think it's, we definitely need to support people to have those conversations and connect with others who think the same way. Um, I, I do find that like, we've worked a lot to get people to the place where they're able to say, I wouldn't personally have an abortion, but I wouldn't judge someone else's choice. Like, I was in that place yeah. for many years. Actually, when I was doing abortion rights work, I still, I think for a lot of years, was thinking, this will never affect me. I'm, mm. I'm fighting for other people's rights here. Yeah. Until I was in a situation myself where that was thrown on its head. So we can get people to that point. I increasingly feel that that's not enough to genuinely break down stigma because I've had some conversations with people where I thought I had them 
there. And then when you actually start to talk about stories and say, well, what do you think about what happened for this person, this choice that this woman made? And you can hear these quite judgmental things coming through. And if we really want to break the stigma, I think we have to go further than just respecting other people's choices. I think we need to help people understand the value of some of those choices and to really honestly respect and even celebrate. And that's harder. I think that is, you've hit the nail on the head with that. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Amanda, speaking of the good and bad abortions, tell us about your own experiences because you've had probably fears of being judged as well for for the experiences you've had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm six months into a tour right now where I am talking about this on stage three, four, sometimes six nights a week. Um, And it has gotten easier. It was actually really frightening. You know, I mean, I I knew I was doing it. I set myself up to do it. But there is still something, even if you're sort of preaching to a choir of uh, like-minded community, there is something still very scary about telling these stories over and over again. Although I have found that, you know, it's sort of like water over a stone. It's not so much uh, repeating these stories. It's the, it's the conversation that it, that it creates in my own community. It's going out into the lobby after the shows and in the street and in the cafes, having people of all genders, all ages, coming up to me, grabbing my hand, saying, I've got a story, can I talk to you? this meant so much to me. Thank you for sharing your story. That's actually, you know, I'm not sure that that's what I was anticipating, but that is actually what has made things easier and made my own sort of healing and complicated feelings easier. And so I tell these stories on stage, but I have had, um, actually, like you, I've been pregnant five times. I've had three abortions, a child, and a miscarriage. Um, and I had my first abortion when I was 17 and did not really struggle with the decision, wanted to finish high school, was very lucky, had a family who supported me. Um, and then I had two abortions after I got married. One, because the pregnancy wasn't viable, because I took an antibiotic um, that was going to make it impossible, unknowingly, didn't know I was pregnant. And then another abortion by choice. Uh, And that one I actually found the most conflicting. And there's something about, you know, every time I, like even just watching Kelly, you're just listening to somebody's story. It's like you've got this mountain of complicated feelings mixed up with shame and residual guilt and baggage and all of this stuff. And every time you hear someone tell a story or share a story, it's just like you take a rock off this giant mountain and you sort of start to feel uh, like, you know, at retroactive empowerment, even that choice that I made when I was 17. And, you know, and at 17, nobody knew. Even though I lived in a liberal state surrounded by people who I knew probably were all pro-choice, nobody talked about it. And it didn't even feel like I made a choice to talk about it or not talk, talk about it. It was just obviously not the thing that you did. Amanda, can you tell the Christmas cactus story? <laughs> I think it's very illustrative of why you weren't ready. Oh, 
which part of the Christmas Just the card? Just the bit where, you know, you got a Christmas card, what happened? Well, I mean, since also since I'm going to play the song later, so I actually, you know, at 17, I was an artist, wanted to be a songwriter, and I found it, that I wanted to write about this topic, and I found it incredibly difficult. I just did not know how to find a path into writing a song about something this nuanced. And so I just didn't. I was scared. Um, and I had logged all of these incredibly poetic images in my head about that day. Um, I went to get uh, this abortion at 17 with my mom, who made the appointment of Planned Parenthood, and my boyfriend, who I was very in love with, who I think actually had a harder time coping than I did. And I also think that they get left out of the story Absolutely. all the time, mm -hmm. their experiences and their difficulties. Um, and the most painful part of the day, like even physically, the most painful part of the day was not getting the abortion procedure. It was walking from the car to the building because I had to walk through a throng of protesters holding signs of bloody fetuses screaming at me that I was a murderer, that I was a murderer and I was 17. And also, my, my sweet boyfriend got me, as a get-well present, a Christmas cactus. <laughs> Which then I had an altar for in my bedroom, and it became like this, this holy symbol, and the Christmas cactus was everything, and I was going to keep the Christmas cactus forever, and it was going to spawn and have Christmas cactus babies, and anywhere I moved, when I went to college, if I moved abroad, I would always take the Christmas cactus, and then two months later, I forgot to water it, and it died. <laughs> I mean, come on. I was not quite ready for the caretaking position. <laughs> um, so, what, what's your take on this stigma-busting angle and how we can... I mean, for me, it's telling the stories, and I, I think that's a really lovely image of putting the rock on and the rock on. Each time a woman explains, because each story is so different, so individual, and nobody can... You know, nobody knows what they, every, anyone's feeling. The reasons are all so different. Yeah. Um, I think hearing those things is just... Is, is, can change you, can change your opinion. Well, I still bristle in my soul every time I tell a story about an abortion. And I think, I talk about this on stage too, it isn't so much that I think anyone is necessarily going to judge me politically, morally, ethically, although I'm sure people will. It's that it is such an incredibly complicated, intimate, personal event in your life that even speaking about it feels like a burden to whoever you are talking to because they then have to carry this incredibly, incredibly personal information. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact, you know, the fact remains that I feel like I have done about as much work as is humanly possible um, to come to terms with and feel okay about my decisions and still it is difficult. Um, and also, I think it's worth mentioning that when I was struggling with the, ch with the choice about whether or not to have a child, which I did for many years, um, which is a whole different conversation, um, one of the things that really bothered me was that in my giant list of pros and cons of whether or not to have a child and how my life would change and what would happen, I found myself thinking, God, if I had a child... I would be so much more authenticated to talk about my abortions. And that is something that doesn't get discussed very often, which is, 
you know, it's, I almost even felt it sitting here, like that relief of, well, and I had a child, and I had a miscarriage. I didn't just have an abortion, like, trust me, trust me. I I did all the things. Um, I'm thinking of Tara Finn because I know that was something that she had. She hadn't had a child and I was there telling my story, but I have twins and they're 10 now. And, you know, I definitely felt that sense of what eventually she did have children. She fulfilled the female destiny and it all worked out. But you know that you're you're so right. Well, and it, it brings up, I mean, it's all sort of Venn diagram topics, but it brings up stuff about miscarriage too, which is the whole frame of this is a cultural paradigm and a patriarchy where as a woman, you have a job. And if you fail at your job, you are bad. And this is what women go through too, and people go through too when they have miscarriages. You know, that's the reason there is such a shame and a stigma and a difficulty around it, is you have somehow fucked up your job. Thank you very much for sharing, because I think, and as you said, Amanda's doing this every night, she's going out there, but, <laughs> I, but yeah, it is like that. But I know from um, having talked about it a lot, each time it's, because it is so intimate, because it is so personal, you never expect that it's going to be something you're going to have to tell other people. So it does take something from you. So Kelly and, you know, Amanda, I really do appreciate that you do that, because it makes a difference, because anytime anyone in the audience or in, a, in your you know, company is, is, has the same thing and I hear you talking about it, it just chips away at that shame and that self-loathing that can come and all of that, so thank you very much. Can we talk about what's next? Because these five months, I'm hoping it's not going to be terrible, but Danielle, you're looking at me a bit caustically, <laughs> so can you tell us on a scale of terrible as 10 and, you know, we're good as down here, you know, what, what are you expecting and what are the goals and challenges in terms of the provisions that you're looking at? Well, the goal is free, safe, legal, local. That's the goal. Um, so we are expecting there to be a consultation, but we don't know yet what that's going to look like, whether it's going to be targeted or whether it's going to be public. So What's the difference? Can you explain? Well, if it's targeted, then it'll be stakeholders is the term, so it'll be medical professionals, probably churches, um, organisations that would be deemed to have a, you know, an, an interest in the issue. Um, whereas if it's a public consultation, that's everybody. So um, we don't know yet exactly what form the consultation is going to take, um, but we will be letting everybody know if it is something that people can um, contribute to. Um, Alliance for Choice will be sharing all the details and encouraging people to submit because it's really important that we do. Mm. Um, So the consultation is the next stage and then the regulations and provision. And are you going to be looking at our provisions in the South to see what you can learn? And Paula, you probably have stuff to say about this as well. What you don't want and what you do want. Is it kind of useful that you have something that's just coming down? So if we look at um, the provisions that are in the South, the three-day waiting period, that's not medically necessary and it's certainly not something we would be wanting here buffer zones were discussed in the south and haven't been legislated for that is something that we would be arguing for um gp access like gp access gp should be able to opt in but i don't know how everybody else's doctors work but you might not get an appointment for a week or two so then people are delaying their treatment and also we've seen, it's, is it 13% of GPs have opted in? Yeah. So it's not, standalone, it wouldn't be enough. So we need another system too, whether that's clinics or through gum services. But we need there to be 
a geographical spread of access. Um, we also need home use um, of pills. Um, that's what they've got now in England, Scotland and Wales. And so people go to the doctor, have the consultation and get given the pills to take at home. Um, the pills can start taking effect within half an hour. So there's lots of stories of people you know, on public transport, even in England where they've been to a clinic because they've had to take them supervised before home use came in. Um, whereas, of course, people were flying home with the effects of the pills um, before now. So um, the majority of abortions will be early medical abortions. So there will be tablets, which means GPs is away, but um, the practical practicalities of having a pharmacy to dispense the pills, it just isn't necessarily going to work like that. But organisations like Doctors for Choice are there to give their expertise. The Royal Colleges mostly supported decriminalisation. All the big ones supported decriminalisation. And um, they've got the expertise to feed into. Um, so we're looking at the NICE guidelines um, as the sort of standard that we're aiming for. Um, there are really good examples of legislation, like the Isle of Man, which changed their law just a year ago. Um, they have buffer zones. They have um, lots of... They've got decriminalisation, which we have now too, um, but they've got a really good example. So, yes, I think being able to highlight best practice elsewhere and also flaws elsewhere will be really useful. And, Paula, on that, because you'll be very much in the thick of it, mm -hmm. I imagine... Well, I was just going to say, we had a briefing, all the political parties had a briefing, I think it was the 3rd of October, and the Northern Ireland Office, who, who are going to conduct the consultation process and the engagement process, as you had mentioned there, they are looking at um, Isle of Man, down south, other parts of Western Europe, and I think that when I've been able to explain that to people, that I, I suspect it would probably be the same as what you have in the south, but I, I had sort of missed that point about the sort of three days, so I will, I will note that and, and look at that. I'm glad this is useful yes, for you. Yes, and also the stuff around the buffer zones, that was mentioned as well. So um, it was my understanding that they were going to go out for public consultation, but again, I will, I will definitely check that because this has to be something that everybody can feed into, because when I've spoken, not through emails, but face-to-face -face with um, people on the doors. Once I've told them that I think that that's what's going to happen, they say, I actually, I can accept that. And some of these people are maybe, you know, 60-plus here, maybe of a different generation than most of us on this panel or in this audience. Um, so I think that once people actually get an understanding of what's going to be consulted on and what eventually will come through, then I think that a lot of this hysteria, as we mentioned earlier, will, will dissipate. But um, You're expecting more emails? Well, yeah, well, I suppose... Uh, but I, I, I suppose once the information's out there, then then it'll actually be more factually based than, I suppose, the speculation that we have at the minute. And Paula, while I have you here on a slightly different topic, what is going on in Stormont and when is it going to get well, happening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over a thousand days now. Yeah. It's a record-breaking non-Parliament, isn't it? Well, I don't want to take us too far off the, the abortion yeah, but topic. Still, just, but, yeah. but I suppose Monday was, was shameful um, in that it was never what the DUP were doing and um, was never going to... You know, this was primacy... This was... Um, legislation Westminster, whatever they were going to do, what they th were trying to do on Monday, was never going to trump or halt the legislation. And in many ways, this was about the DUP trying to, to attempt, when they go to the doors, because there'll be a, a general election and possibly an assembly election early in New Year, and this will be their attempt to say that they... They turned some, up and they... They, they, they turned tried. up, but they... But I put it out publicly, not once were we contacted, none of the polit other political parties were contacted from this Della Crisi amendment in the middle of June. July right through till that, that last week. Um, nobody, nobody even knew that they were going to attempt anything. And I said it publicly, and I'll say it again, 
the um, Paul Given, an MLA here in Lagan Valley, Lisburn, very close to where we are today, um, he put down a private members bill um, on the morning than when we were meant to have the sitting. And um, I mean, it, it was such a nonsense. It was a, it was a staff member in another political party who photocopied it and sneaked it to us at about half 11, half an hour before we were meant to um, even sit. We were never going to go in and sit, but that was, that was how ludicrous it was. It wasn't um, human rights compliant. There was nothing discerning about it at all that was going to do it. And um, it was a complete nonsense. And, and the problem with that was that it was another circus where political parties marched in and then they marched out and they went in front of the media and they all tried to give their own spin on what had happened that day. And in many ways, it's put us further back. I think the Secretary of State has a, a, is responsible for convening the conversation around trying to get a deal between the DUP and, and Sinn Féin. And I'm not going to give you all the legislative background about that, but they're the two parties that have to do, to, to do the deal to get the executive back up and running. Um, I mean, the, the, their relationship is so sour now, I just don't know how they go forward. I, don't, I think the Secretary of State is out of ideas, and I would say that an assembly election may not change the composition, although I do think there are a lot of people will possibly change their vote, but I think that it would give it a fresh mandate. I think it's just got very tired, and I think people are just fed up with politicians. Oh, that's a very good summation. I'm sorry for going slightly <laughs> off topic, but I'm yeah. just interested in what, what that will happen. Um, Kelly, for you, the next five months, and yeah. as an activist and someone who has deeply personal experience but also wants uh, mm. to bring people along, what is it going to look like for you, and where do you see your work? Well, I think um, we can quite easily, well, I shouldn't actually say that, touch wood. I think we can get people on board with um, the idea of quite unrestricted access in the first trimester, similar to what has been brought in in the South. For one thing, in terms of being compliant with that UN CEDAW committee, that is really the only way to effectively ensure access for anyone who's experienced rape or sexual crime. Um, and I think people can understand that and accept that. And we know that will provide access for over, possibly over 80% of people. But I think we're going to have to have some difficult conversations about second trimester abortions. Um, obviously, in the, in the reproductive rights movement, we talk about as early as possible and as late as necessary. So we're going to have to really work with people to talk about what that means and stories are going to come into it and difficult conversations mm -hmm. about fatal anomaly and um, you know it's been pitched uh, by the kind of anti-choice side as being about disability um, and we have to challenge that mm -hmm. but also we have to talk about the reality of some attitudes within the medical professional to disability because we do get reports of families in GB who feel pressurised when they get a particular diagnosis to have a termination because that 24 week limit is coming up and doctors really don't like to perform abortions after 24 weeks. There were only 280 in the UK last year. So some families can feel under pressure to make that decision. And some of that is coming from a lack of understanding in the medical professional profession about the, the positive aspects that, you know, someone with something like Down syndrome, you know, can, go, can lead a, a, a brilliant, uh, you know, life. Um, so I think we all have to be prepared to have difficult conversations on all sides of issues like that to ensure that we protect access uh, for people in the second trimester because it is essential for this to be something that really reaches everybody from a social justice perspective. 
that we don't have such a strict cutoff point that you have in the south because we know there's stories coming through that it is just so um, it's adding so much more pressure to people and it is still removing access from a lot of the people whose stories were what drove the campaign in the first place who are now looking at what access you have in the south and going that wouldn't have even benefited me. Um, um, just on a different note, I mentioned the grassroots activism and the kind of um, radical feminist movement you've had up here that has really created this and the persistence and the tenacity of it. Can you talk a bit about um, what that's felt like to be part of, the solidarity, the sisterhood? And I'm glad to see so many guys here as well. And I really agree with Amanda. When we were having this conversation in the South, I tried as much as possible to get men involved in the conversation. We had a women's podcast where we had three men in whose uh, partners had experienced abortion and they talked about their own journey through that too because it affects so many more people than just the person who had it. And I think that's really important to remember. But what has it been like, I mean, in terms of being an activist and being part of the movement? I know there's been loads of frustrations and difficulties, but can we talk about some of the joys of that? Because personally, I found that just being so unifying and there's so much joy that comes from being together with people fighting for these causes. Yeah, well, like I can't see everybody with the lights, but I probably know about a third of the people in the room through one thing or another, um, because we have actually got quite a broad... Um, you know, spectrum of people who support us, whether that's going to protests um, whenever we have them, going to do the stall more regularly, or people who are involved in, in other ways through sharing stories. Um, so we have, yeah, I don't know whether I'd call it a sisterhood, but I don't know, a coven, maybe. Yeah, a coven, yeah. <laughs> we like that word. Yeah, um, and it is, there's friendships, like there's friendships that will last forever and um, we have very tense times when stuff is happening at Westminster at you know one o'clock in the morning and then somebody has to go on the radio at seven o'clock the next morning to talk about it and there's a, like there are disagreements but we're in a position where we trust each other and we know everybody's doing what they think is best to achieve free safe legal local mm. so there is space to have those discussions um, Tuesday night, we sort of put off our, I know Alliance for Hysteria here, and you had a big party on Monday, and Soap DJ'd and it looked brilliant, but we were all too superstitious to do anything Monday night. <laughs> so, um, so we had our um, get together on Tuesday, and we didn't go for karaoke much as it was um, talked about, but um, we've done karaoke for choice a few times. Um, but we booked a section of a pub, and... Um, went for drinks, people dropped in and out over the course of the evening. And we don't normally get to socialise together because we're always there with mm. an agenda. So that was really nice to catch up with people and to sort of have that sense of, like, I'm not really a hugger, but um, I don't know how many hugs. Um, and I work in the LGBT sector and there's some people from the LGBT sector here too. And um, like coming in to work after the vote happened and people just hugging me like so it was July like would it be nice to have a bank holiday because it was July fortnight that they did all this in Westminster so yeah happily we were off work and able to focus our time on this um yeah so have you become a hugger since this no? no Tuesday was yeah there's been um yeah <laughs> so yes there's been lots of hugs and lots of like I don't think it's not jubilation it's a different feeling yeah. it's 
it's a feeling it's it is relief. A, yeah it's relief and but also being fully aware that the next few months to get access are going to be tough mm. and then we're going to have to defend this forever yeah well that's as we know from Amanda you can speak to that because yeah I can't wait to start talking about something else <laughs> really, I can't wait to start singing about something else. I mean, I'm about to take this tour to Australia and then New Zealand, and then I'm probably going to do a finishing run of it in New York, but there is this part of me that's like, I don't want to stay here in this conversation forever. Um, I hope that uh, the turn of events allows us to move on from this conversation, mm. and then we can look back and say we did that. Mm. Good that we did that. Mm. Now we can work on other really critical things like the climate crisis, mm -hmm. uh, which is incredibly urgent. And, you know, all of this needs to be addressed so that we can spend our time and attention where it is truly needed, really needed now. Well, if you know, you're going to have to keep talking about it just for, just for this podcast. <laughs> anyway, and for the rest of your That's okay. And you're going to sing your song. Yeah. Um, it's good news for New Zealand because they've got a vote coming up soon. So oh my God! I'll be there. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, New Zealand and Australia are talking about decrim tea. So yeah, just keep, keep yeah, get check your dates. Oh my God! I mean, last time I was on my way to Christchurch, an earthquake happened. So it's just I'm just just follow me around. It, it will be interesting. Paula, what are your hopes? Just finally, do you think it's going to get very toxic? Are you kind of nervous about it, or do you? No, think... I. Do you know it really has emboldened me, and I think okay. that yeah, absolutely. And I think I was sort of alluding that at the start. It really wasn't the top of my agenda, really, in terms of issues that I wanted to achieve. Um, as a politician per se, um, I spent 19 years in the community voluntary sector, so sort of the um, issues around um, poverty and stuff. You know, but but this really has emboldened me because I just felt really. Um, you know, I don't know whether anybody heard me on the radio during the week with Paul Given around this. And, and, you know, I just don't like people saying that we are adopting a certain position that we're not. And so I think that what we have to do now is really just get behind the activists in this room, really, and just push this. So that then, as you say, we can get on then to getting the Assembly back up and running, getting the, the big issues around cancer and um, infrastructure and education crisis like there's so many things in this country that really should have been taken up our time but we have had this these red lines and stalemate over these wedge issues these um, social justice issues we have Irish Language Act to get through um, they were talking during the week at Westminster about possibly putting it through there I mean can we not deal with these issues here and, and uh, as proper legislators and, and be able to work together in consensual politics but I'm not too sure right now. So, you know, it's emboldened me that I just want to make sure that we get the message right and that the consultation is as accessible as possible. And then hopefully we'll get our assembly back up and running. Um, and Kelly, finally, I just want to ask you before we're going to have Amanda singing, and I, actually I hope Amanda's going to talk about the song and how what inspired her and, and the story behind it. But um, watching Northern Ireland myself, as I said, I've got close ties to it, and my partner's from here, and I've lived here, and I really love the place. And obviously, when Ira McKee died, that was just so sad. But it did make me think. Um, when I saw the kind of uh, solidarity there and all the young voices coming out of that, that there's a, there's a, there's a new Northern Ireland right there, visible. It's happening. This week, it's like, it's exploded, I think. And I just wonder, Kelly, do you feel that, that do you get that sense of possibility of a whole generation coming up who don't want 
things to be down the lines that they were before, not just on this, yeah. issue, this issue, but on so many issues around society, that this new Northern Ireland is not maybe so far away um, as it was. Do you feel like that? Or is I, that just me yeah. being very Pollyannish and glad? <laughs> Tell me, be cynical if you No, want. I really do. And, you know, we talk about Northern Ireland being a conservative place. Um, actually, this cons any sort of conservative values really came about as a part of our conflict. And the further away we get from that conflict, the more open, liberal and progressive we can be. We had this situation, like this is getting into the like religious mindset of it. Northern Ireland is what's described as a double minority model because within Northern Ireland, traditionally the Catholic nationalist community felt like a minority. Um, but within Ireland as a whole, the Protestant unionist community felt like a minority. And what that does to people in terms of religious values is drives people into defensive conservative camps. And that's why on both sides of the community here, these issues, these social issues, you know, conservative standpoints were the only thing that people agreed on because they were almost trying to outdo each yeah. other. So the further away we get from that conflict and that tension and that psychology and psyche of being in conflict and feeling under threat, the more we see people open up to all of these kind of social issues. For me, the one thing that needs to come with it though is we need to, as a society, genuinely tackle social inequality in terms of uh, wealth inequality. Um, it was left out of all of our peace process planning. Um, so I see so much potential in Northern Ireland, but I want to see everybody be able to enjoy that. Um, and we still do not have that. We have communities that are just struggling to survive. Um, yeah. Well, it's about rising all the boats, not just some. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Now, I'm so delighted uh, that Amanda's here, that you're all here to hear this. For me, I think, uh, if I'd had a song like this when I was having my abortion, coming back to work, having pretended I was out doing it, catching a couple of shows in London and then back, back into work and not being able to speak to anyone about it. I mean, I, as Amanda said, you are burdening someone. I didn't even tell my mother not because I thought she'd judge me or wouldn't love me, I knew she would, but I didn't want her to have the information. I didn't want her to worry about me, worry that I was coming back from that into a place that, that uh, shamed women for that, that judged people for that, that you know, held a, a, a criminal conviction if, if you had an abortion in Ireland. Um, and so it's not something that anyone ever tells you well done about, which I know might seem a strange one, but that's why I love this song, because I do feel I made a very good decision for myself. I did something really responsible. There was no way I could have had a child then. I wouldn't have been able for it. It would have been a disaster. And I did something right, you know, but nobody ever tells you that. You don't hear it. I hope if there's anyone in this room who's had an abortion, if you haven't heard it, I want to tell you, you did a very sensible thing for yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did that and well done. You're brave and you're responsible. And like I said, if I'd had this song, I think things would have been a lot different. And I might have told my story a lot earlier. But at least now we have this song. And Amanda's <laughs> going to tell you how it came about. Um, so I wrote this song shortly after coming back from Dublin, um, having experienced what I experienced there and uh, meeting all of these really, really brave activists and you know, just watching the... like the relief and the, you know, like you said, it wasn't so much jubilation as just like this collective relief um, at what was happening. And, you know, having looked at the ingredients that fed it, which was this really empowered storytelling, 
and, you know, and sort of like a torch of, you know, flame of truth being handed on and on and on. And, and you know, much like the Me Too movement, it was just like all of a sudden it's just wildfire and a safety in numbers. And, um, and I, I don't usually tell this story on stage, but um, there was something about the way this story was written that I didn't realize was quite as important at the time, but I really feel it now. And I especially feel it having just been basically uninvited from the Late Late Show because I wanted to play the song and I basically just got shown the door. The way the song was written, you know, I do a whole monologue in my show, you know, 20 years trying to write a song about abortion. It's really hard, you know, who hasn't tried to write the perfect abortion song? Ha ha ha. And yet, uh, I got back home, I, I really felt that it was time to sit and try and ta- tackle this topic and get it right and how. And um, right around the time my child was born, I started a Patreon, which is basically a subscription like Kickstarter to an artist where you know, you're, you're, cr- you're permanently crowdfunded. And this song was going to you know, come out as a, as a demo and then on my record. Um, but also, you know, these patrons of mine, at this point there was probably maybe 10,000 of them, were also like, you know, a workshop and a safe incubator with which, you know, kind of a sparring partner, a dancing partner that I could partner with whom I could write this song. And the day before I had set aside studio time to try and sit down and tackle this song topic, which is not something I usually do. I usually just wait for inspiration to strike and I sit down and I play it. Um, And I went to my patrons, to my blog, and I said, I'm going to try and write about something really hard tomorrow. If you could say one thing to a person who is going to get an abortion tomorrow, what would you say? And I wish you could go read. I mean, you can. It's archived on the internet. Um, You know, over a thousand comments came in. And it was, it, it, it was overwhelming to read the amount of compassion and tenderness in those comments that came from my community. And in a way, I'm the one who sat down and penned the song, but I was sort of riding on that wave of, you know, it was like all of my patrons and all those comments created a space in which I could, into which I could walk to write this song. And the reason I don't think that this is unimportant to mention is, you know, there is still not really space in our culture to get up on a stage and say this and be applauded. And yet there are a lot of really brave artists out there who are just trying to circumnavigate the mainstream media system in order to be able to still send this message, which is not going to get played on the radio. It's just not. We're not there yet. But I have a Patreon, and Anita Franco started one two days ago. And if you want to hear these stories, we have a channel. We have our own channel now. Sorry, fuck the Late Late Show. Like, we'll just start our own channel. Um, and, you know, and, and again, we're, it's like we're building our own off-grid system so that this this kind of storytelling can have a, a voice.
to start that one again. Just waving from London I know that you're going tomorrow The hardest decision And I've been on the side of the phone For a month and I know you're in hell And you know that I know what you're feeling Life's such a bitch, isn't it? When you have a baby They throw you a party and then when you die, they get together for a cry. But no one's gonna celebrate you. No one's gonna bring you cake. And no one's gonna shower you with flowers. The doctor won't congratulate you. No one on that pavement's gonna shout at you that your heart also matters. I'm not sure that you'll get this in time I don't know if you're checking your voicemail at all But in case it's the morning And you're off with the green line and walking through Copley I want you to stop for a second I want you to listen You don't need to offer the right explanation You don't need to beg for redemption or ask for forgiveness You don't need a courtroom inside of your head where you're acting as judge and accused and defendant and witness. It's a strange grief, but it's grief. Look at all the women in the street. You know the statistics, Jill. Even though they may not help Isn't it amazing How we can never tell Who is in an identical Shout at you that your heart 
not just people who had abortions, but the humanity and compassion and care that none of us got who had to go and go to another country and let someone else's um, services take care of us because our own wouldn't. And the shame and the horribleness of that and the comfort in Amanda's song is something very special. And she did say ukulele by request. So <laughs> that's all we have time for. Please give a round of applause to our guests, Danielle Roberts, Kelly Turtle, Paula Bradshaw, and Amanda Beckin-Palmer. <laughs> graduated from flipping, thanks. Um, the podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon and Damien Hughes on sound. And I just want to thank the Belfast Mac for being such an amazing home for this podcast. And all the team have been so helpful with everything and making us so welcome in what I think is one of the friendliest, probably the friendliest city in the world. And I really hope the women's podcast can come back again soon and perhaps talk about something different or perhaps come back when this is all sorted out and when we can kind of move on to other things too. Um, the conversation needs to keep happening. We need to keep telling the stories and reducing the stigma that still clings to the reproductive lives of women, unfortunately. So from the Women's Podcast and the Belfast Mac, thank you very much for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 